Welcome to Pastor Matters, the podcast of the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We hope this conversation will both equip and encourage you to lead healthy churches that make disciples for the glory of God. Hi, I'm Brandon Ward. And I'm Ron Joylock. We want to thank you for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters. We are back again this week, Ron Joy, and I'm super excited for our conversation today with the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. Patrick Schreiner. Dr. Schreiner teaches New Testament at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. He's authored several books and resources, including his most recent book, Political Gospel, Public Witness, and A Politically Crazy World. Dr. Schreiner... Thank you so much for taking some time to join our conversation today. Good to be with you guys. So appreciate what you guys are doing at Southeastern. So good on to a, be with you. On a completely unrelated note, Dr. Schreiner, I have to say, I have been an admirer of the beard game for some time now. Uh, if there was a bracket of profs' beards in the SBC, I've got you going to the championship. And I got you going up against <laughs> Dr. Ross Inman. Now, who wins that, Ron Jor? I don't. I don't know. That's a that's a good that's a good competition there. I'll give you a little secret. If I shaved my beard, I'd look like I was twelve. So this is why I have it. <laughs> see, this is why I'm aspiring to be a beard grower. <laughs> well, see, I thought you were going to say if you shave your beard, you will look like your dad, and and so it's a nice little distinguishing uh, factor there. Oh, God. I do remember when my dad shaved his beard when we moved to Kentucky, actually, for him to teach at Southern, and I thought he was a different person. I was like, who's the stranger in my house? Uh, well, thank you again, brother, for joining us and for writing this book. You wrote Political Gospel, and it released this month, uh, which is very timely, as we were just discussing, considering the, the political season we're in the middle of. Uh, why don't we just get the conversation started with you telling us a little bit about the book? Why did you write it? What's the story behind it? Yeah, there's a lot of factors that came together as I began to think about writing this book. Number one, I was concerned with how the American church is dealing with politics. And I saw, as I think a lot of pastors are seeing, a lot of division within the church over politics. And that just cued for me that we probably have more work to do on political discipleship. And uh, I'm sure we'll get into this as the conversation goes. But because it's such a heated issue, we, we might tend to not speak about this as much because it's so immediately divisive for people that it's difficult for us to try to know how to speak about this topic without dividing people. And so our tendency probably has been to avoid this a little bit just because we don't want to raise up things that will cause problems in congregations and so forth and so on. And so I was watching that. And then the second thing was that, uh, you know, I'm not a political theology theorist. Uh, I haven't done a ton of work in terms of even political history. What I have done is a lot of work in New Testament scholarship and biblical scholarship. And while I'm really thankful for all of the books that are out there that, that talk about political theory or political theology and how Presbyterians versus Baptists versus Roman Catholics might maybe think about political theory, um, I was more and more convinced that the everyday Christian just needs to actually go back to the scriptures and think about how Jesus and Paul and really the early church interacted with the Roman Empire. And the reality is they all lived under a political system and they were asked questions about the political system and how to engage. And in one sense, I think that is the foundation that we need to build off of. In another sense, I think that's the easiest way to just engage with this issue Uh it's not easy in, in some ways, but it's easiest in terms of we can go to the scriptures and we can see, hey, um, 
you know, it wasn't just all about Jesus being a religious figure. There were political things swirling in the air. And so I really wanted to just open people's eyes to the political reality of the Bible and say, actually, the Bible has a lot more to teach us about how to engage than we might imagine. And so both those things kind of combined that produced this book. So it's definitely still has some of that New Testament scholarship feel, Mm. but I wrote in a way that I hope it can be helpful for political discipleship. Mm. That's good. Now, in your book, you address uh, two political ditches uh, that believers could, could find themselves in. Um, kind of in line with um, with with Niebuhr's Christ and culture, where you have kind of the Christ against culture and the Christ of culture. You kind of have that that same uh, uh, those same dichotomies, where you could either uh, make your faith private uh, and kind of separate it from you know the public square, separate it from you know the political arena, and so on. Or you could make it partisan, you know, where it, you're so entrenched into the you know, the political arena that that there's no distinction, uh, no differentiation uh, between Christi- uh, Christianity yeah. and you know uh, uh, politics and so on. So, with with those two ditches in mind, how should Christians care about politics? Uh, what does it mean to, or what what does it look like to be a Christian in a politically crazy world like we have today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And maybe I'll just even back up a little bit. I was trying to figure out where do people stand on this issue? And as you mentioned, I, I felt like either people didn't allow their Christian faith to interact with their political views at all because they're with one's religion and one's politics, one's private, one's public. And I thought, well, that's not the solution because actually our faith is a public reality. Sure. And then I thought, but on the opposite end, it seems like sometimes we're so combining our faith with a political party or system that there's no distinction between the two. Mm-hmm. And so those were the two poles that I was uh, dealing with. And I just thought, you know, if you go back to the scriptures, we have to remember that Jesus, yes, came as uh, a Jewish Messiah, but even the term Messiah was a kind of political figure at the time. Now, he's going to redefine what the, his politic is. And people are going to be like confused about what that means. But when he declares that his kingdom has come, I always tell people like a way you could translate that is like his monarchy has come and he's going to be the emperor of that kingdom. And Hmm. when we use those type of terms, we're like, wait a second, that sounds way too political. But that was really Jesus's announcement. And again, he will redefine what that means. But my argument throughout the book is that Christians are not nearly political enough because we've forgotten that our faith is public. So when I say political, I don't mean partisan, and I also don't mean um, that we should combine the church and state. Mm -hmm. What I mean by it is just it's a public reality, and that means it has implications for how you vote and how you interact with the political sphere, but maybe even more fundamentally that our basic confession is that Jesus Christ is Lord, that mm-hmm. he is king, and that we are the most political, uh, we have a political confession as the church, as the body of Christ. And that's where we need to begin. And I'd hope if we begin there, we can actually provide unity that we're not for this party necessarily or against that party. We're actually, we begin, now you can have views about the different parties, but we begin with Christ as our King, and that should be kind of the unifying force for the church to move forward. And that will have implications for how you vote. Yes, that will have, uh, we, we need to talk about ethical triage and what to do in terms of the issues. I'm not denying all that, but really what I wanted to do in this book was provide a foundation from which to think and act 
rather than talk about the issues. Because I think if we talk about the issues, you immediately begin to kind of align yourself right or left. And mm -hmm. I, yeah, I mean, um, uh, maybe the weakness, and I'll just even say the weakness of this book is maybe I went a little bit too third wayism, if that makes sense. Like, oh, there's a third way, and Christianity is the third way. And I want to be careful. I recognize there's some strengths and probably some weaknesses of a third way. Um, but at the same time, I just feel that people are so divided that maybe we do need a little bit more of a third way. And I myself have felt more and more politically homeless, and I think more Christians have felt that way. Right. And so I was kind of trying to push that as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure. So, so how should Christians view the government? I mean, uh, you know, we have folks uh, even in our local churches, uh, perhaps even pastors, who see the government as the enemy. Uh, you know, and so anything that you know, any way that we can contribute to uh, the either the 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 the, um, the tamping down of the government or uh, or even the overthrowing of the government, you know, whatever we need to do, that's what we need to do in order to set up the kingdom of Christ or something like that. Uh, you know, there are people who see it that way. There are others that see uh, the government as the oppressor, uh, and so therefore, you know, we've got to you know march and we've got to. Uh, uh, you know, protest, and we've got to do whatever we can to uh, to end the oppression that is, you know, government and 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 all of that. Yeah, you don't yeah. see a lot of people that are saying, you know, well, we need to submit to the government uh, and so on. <laughs> at least not in America. Uh, that 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 isn't typically how we roll. But uh, but yeah. there are all kinds of different. Uh, approaches in different churches uh, that you'll hear in different churches, and certainly, you know, in literature over the over the centuries, on how Christians are uh, how how Christians are to relate to the government. How how yeah, should yeah. we view the government from a biblical? Yeah, perspective? Well, well, that's a great question. One of the things I think I'm increasingly convinced of is it's really difficult for us as Americans to hold two or three truths at once and say they're all true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We, we tend to think like one's true and one's not. And you listed, I think you said three things, like do we submit to them? Are they oppressor? Or do we need to like totally avoid them um, and go against them? And one of the things I want to do in this book is present the paradox that we find in the scriptures that actually I think all of those things end up being true at the same time. Hmm. And I think we want to rationalize and say, well, one's more true than the other. But one of the paradigms that I kept working with, and hopefully this will help, uh, even listeners, is that um, Romans 13 and Revelation 13 exists in our Bible at the same time. Mm. And Romans 13 says, the government is God's servant, and we are to submit to them, and we're to even to pay taxes to them. I think Paul's riffing on Jesus's words yeah. in Mark 12. I think he's using Jesus, the Jesus tradition, saying, this is exactly what we're called to. And if I just can pause on that, on Romans 13, and say, remember, this is Rome, <laughs> and Rome is way worse than the American system. It was Absolutely. a totalitarian regime. I mean, they would, if you went against their rule, they would crucify you, as we know from the scriptures. They would sew you up inside of animals. They would bury you alive. And, and Paul's looking at this corrupt government system, and he's saying, the one who killed my Savior, the one who will eventually kill me, he didn't may probably know that at that point, but the one who will kill me, the one who will kill my friends, you're called to submit to them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's an amazing thing. Peter says the exact same thing in yeah. 1 Peter 2. Yeah. At the same time, though, Revelation 13 exists. And John speaks about uh, the governing authorities throughout history as coming from the dragon mm -hmm. himself mm -hmm. and being beasts that come out of the sea and from the land. And John's very clearly peeling back the layers and saying, 
these figures in history who oppose God's will are actually servants of Satan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's the paradox. Both of those exist in the scripture. And I think depending on your background, your tradition, mm-hmm. your experience with the American government, you might tend towards one of one or the other. And I want to say actually yes to all of those yeah. that somehow, and this is where it's so difficult, somehow the government is both God's servant and Satan uses it to spread chaos as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they promote order at the at the exact same time that they actually spread chaos and are the oppressor. Yeah. And so that's where Christians have to be able to look at the government and say, what are they doing and where do we submit? And kind of my two commands that I use, where do we submit and where do we subvert? Mm-hmm. Because if they are providing peace and order and human flourishing, then because we care and because we believe that every human being is made in the image of God. We subvert them. So for our fellow human beings, because they are to provide that for other human beings. So yeah, it's, it's kind of depending, like, what am I going to emphasize depending on who I'm talking to? Probably in the American system in the American church, we tend towards revolution. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and so we need to go back. Uh, this is what's so hard. I think we, we might tend towards that, but then our political theology, I think sometimes in the American white church, is only Romans 13 and first Peter two. And we forget about the other texts as well. And so I'm trying to balance all those things and say, we might tend towards more of a um, anti-government view. And we need to remember, we need to honor them, but we also need to remember that the political theology of the Bible goes far beyond those two texts and the commands. And that there are actions that Jesus, Paul himself, John himself make, Daniel, Esther. You can just go through the scriptures and see, we need to look at the actions of these individuals as well. The political theology is hard in the scriptures because we do have stories of what they did and not just commands. And I think, at least in kind of the maybe Protestant modern view, we tend to go towards Paul's commands or Peter's commands. This is what we're called to do. And we forget about the action. So you you can hear even me trying to say both and both and both and all the time. And I think it kind of depends on whom speaking to in terms of what I'm going to emphasize more or the other. So I'm happy for feedback on those though. Yeah. I, I, you mentioned Revelation 13. I, I think about Revelation 21. Uh, and in Revelation 21, when it's talking about uh, the the New Jerusalem coming down and just this vision at the end of what it's, what it's all going to be like when heaven finally comes down to earth and we will see the culmination of the story. Uh, he says in there, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. And I remember reading this just recently, last couple of years, I remember reading Revelation and getting through uh, to chapter 21. It was just like a record scratch, skirt, you know, just stop and go, wait, kings? Wait a second. So in the New Jerusalem, there's still going to be politics <laughs> in the in the end result of history, the culmination of history. There's no sin. There's no evil. There's no wickedness. All of that's done away with in Revelation 20. Wait, wait, wait. 
there's still politicians? <laughs> How did they get in there? And and I think what's going on here is we we are living in, uh, as I know you talk about in, in, in several of your other works, this already not yet. Uh, the, the government is good. Uh, the yeah. government is God's servant. The government is here, you know, uh, uh, to establish order and, and so on. Um, and yet it's not yet what it will be. Uh, right. And so we we submit to it knowing what God has has designed for it to be. And using your language, we subvert, you know, in the areas where we know it's not yet what God wants it to be. And so there's, right. this, there's this tension. Uh, I absolutely agree with you. There's this tension in which we give the honor and respect that is due because God placed them in, in, in the positions that he's placed them. And yet That's at the right. same time, we realize this is still a fallen creature, <laughs> a fallen creation, uh, and and yeah. very much susceptible to, um, as Paul would say, the the powers and the principalities, the rulers and the authorities in the heaven uh, in the uh, in the heavenlies and the spiritual realm and so on. And they're very much susceptible to those things too, because every single person involved is a fallen <laughs> is a fallen human, right. uh, and right. so there's that there's that back and forth, back and forth. I, I absolutely right. agree with you. And, and I'm glad you brought up that temporal distinction of the already not yet, because at the very end of the book, I bring that up and I say, why is it, why does this paradox exist? It's because we live in the old order with a new order breaking in. Yeah. Hmm. And so two things can be true at the same time. And this is what Augustine wrote about in the city of God and mm-hmm. the city of man. Absolutely. Uh, this is precisely his paradigm. And so at, at the same time that this old order exists, and we're actually not supposed to get rid of that, we're supposed to submit to them. The kingdom of God is breaking in. And so in some sense, there's cohesion. In another sense, there's opposition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so like both of that's where both of those can exist at the same time. And that's what's so difficult about political theology. Which side do you fall on? Mm. Um, as you said in Revelation, at the end, no longer will the human government system outside of God's governmental system need to exist. But in the meantime, they do need to exist. Yeah. And therefore, we need to submit to them. And it's like we either become, we go too far forward, we want to institute God's kingdom now, <laughs> Or we say, oh, this is all good, and they're going to institute God's kingdom. Mm-hmm. Neither of those things are true, and mm-hmm. that that's the balance that we live in. Yeah. The other thing I want to say about Revelation, because I end with Revelation, is, you know, the new Jerusalem comes down, and this is, we don't want to push this forward, this doesn't happen yet, but the new Jerusalem comes down because Babylon has fallen. Yeah. And so there's a replacement of the city of Babylon yeah. by the new Jerusalem. That's mm-hmm. opposition. Mm-hmm. When Jesus mm-hmm. says he's king of kings, He's not saying he's just the Lord of your life. Yeah. He's saying, I'm the king of all kings. Of in other words, right, every king, right. this Psalm 2, must bow and submit to me. And as you do that, you're you're actually lifted up to rule and reign with him. But if mm-hmm. you don't, you go to the lake of fire. And so uh, throughout Revelation, it's the kings of the earth who call that the rocks, I think it's Revelation 7, that the rocks fall on them. They hide themselves in the caves because the king of kings has mm-hmm. returned. And so there's a lot of opposition there. What's fascinating about Revelation is when you hear that opposition, you're like, okay, we should take up the sword. We should fight for Jesus. We should deny the government. And John's like, you know how I want you to fight? Uh, I want you to die. I want mm-hmm. you to be martyrs for my sake. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that there's the paradox again. Like we are to conquer. He actually uses the, the word for Nike, right? Nakao. Uh-huh. Yeah. To conquer by being martyrs, by witnessing. That's uh, martus, the word for witnessing. 
we are to follow the lamb in terms of how we witness. And so, so often I think Christians begin to think, okay, we need to spread the kingdom by force. But throughout the New Testament, it's so clear. We spread the kingdom by a politic of persuasion, not by force, not by domineering, not by, I would say, even electing the right officials. That's not how mm. people become Christians. Right. We do so by convincing them that this is a better way. Mm. And so, man, it's so difficult, but this is so important for us because this is a lot of people might think, why are you so into politics? Why do we need to talk about this? This is just part of our lives. This is how we organize ourselves. This is this is important for society. And so this is just a part of your discipleship for everyday life. Yeah, this has been really good. And we've kind of hit on this a little bit, but how should we react? How should pastors react when the government doesn't pursue policies and laws that align with the scriptures? Yeah, I mean, I'd have to think about like the specific situation. Um, it, it kind of varies. I think it does vary. I think it depends. I, I, it would just depend on the situation. Um, I mean, maybe I'll just say a few thoughts, and then you can you can throw me feedback in terms of if you're thinking of a specific situation. Um, I think we need to be very aware that we should vote uh, according to God's created order and natural law that will bring peace and flourishing to humanity, even if they don't recognize that themselves, even mm-hmm. if they would vote against that themselves because we believe God has created a good order of things and that good order will bring happiness and life to people, even if they don't recognize it. So we should be advocates advocates of what we believe will bring in the best state for other image bearers. And that sometimes means we will go with culture and sometimes means we will go against culture. But let's maybe even just look at a specific scenario. So like, uh, you know, Roe v. Wade, how how should we react to that? Is it something yeah. where we're being vocal about that, where we're marching? Are we silent about that? Yeah, I think we are yeah. uh, advocates for the kingdom of God, and we're advocates for other human beings and life. And really, the American experiment is the pursuit of happiness there. And I think as Christians, we do advocate um, against a Roe v. Wade type decision because we believe that all humans are valuable. I don't think that's instituting Christian law. Yeah. <laughs> I think that in a pluralistic society, that's us advocating for what we believe. And we actually believe everyone should be able to do that in uh, America itself right. in terms of the governmental system. Right. So I think that's important that we do. But you can push that argument too far where you believe that the scriptures should be um, installed as the new governmental right. system. Right. And so there's a cle- there's a distinction between advocating for your Christian principles and having a fusion between Christianity and American life to believe that your voice is the only voice that should be heard in terms of policies or that your voice should rule the day is a different argument than saying, I believe Christians should advocate for what they believe. And I think actually, if you talk to anyone on the streets, they say, we should all be able to advocate for what we believe. And I think Christians doing that is no different. And so I would say vote with your conscience and yes, vote with the scriptures, but be careful. We aren't trying to take over the system mm-hmm. by dominion. Right. That's, I mean, the, the term Christian nationalism is hot in the conversation right yeah, now. Sure. Whether it actually exists is debated, but um, <laughs> I think it does. And I think we need to define what we mean by that. And I think there's good to affirming we... Christianity should and has and should continue to have influence on the nation. But that's a 
that's a different argument than saying it should be fused with American life. I right. know that's a fine distinction, but I think we need to we need to point that out. Right. So <clears throat> let's do a little pop quiz real quick. Let's do a true or false. So I'm gonna I'm gonna list three statements, and I want you to tell me if it's true or false. And if we want to spend some time talking about it, we can do that. <laughs> this is for your okay. students. You can tell your students you've been quizzed. The good, uh, that's great. The so, problem is, I'm probably going to say always yes and because my whole thing is it's a paradox, <laughs> right? Right, so right, right. Okay, yeah. so here we go. Statement number one: Christianity is political. True. So I mentioned this earlier. I think we tend to view Christianity as something that's mainly private, something between yeah. us and Jesus. Evangelicalism and populist evangelicalism has really pushed forward this idea. And there's a lot of good to it. I do think there's a lot in terms of your individual relationship with Jesus. I would just back up and say the whole story of the scriptures, though, is about Jesus bringing yeah. in a new kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth. Mm -hmm. So it's much larger than you. It's much more cosmic in scope. And the whole point of this whole thing is that we have a new king installed. So okay. as Ron Jewer was saying at the end of Revelation, it's a very political vision. Yeah. I would say politics existed. This is a hugely debated issue, so you can get me in trouble for this. But um, I think politics existed before the fall, and it will exist in the new heavens and the new earth mm -hmm. because it's just how we organize e each other. Um, I think eventually, even if there was no fall, we probably would have needed traffic lights so we don't uh, run into each other. So right. mm -hmm. that, that's a form of politics. So yes, Christianity is fully political, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily partisan. I think Jesus, we can't fit Jesus into our little political boxes. Right. All right. Statement number two, America is a Christian nation. Uh, false. I would say false. I don't think those two concepts actually can be combined. Yeah. So let me just give you an example. Uh, nations are defined by borders, right? Uh, like physical borders. Christianity transcends physical borders. Right. We actually are a people that say, I want to go to another border to share the news of Jesus Christ as king. And so if you actually go through uh, how do you usually enter nation states? You usually enter nation states by being born into it. Now you can, there's other way to enter nation states. How do you enter Christianity? By voluntary choice. Now, obviously you can talk about all the different ways you enter a nation state, but typically you're just born into a nation state. Christianity, you actually choose. I want to be a part of this new yeah. nation. So um, I think that's a confusion of categories. Mm. Uh, I don't think any nation is necess can necessarily be Christian in the sense that many people mean. Now, what I'm not denying is that it uh, could be um, influenced by Christianity, or I would say a lot of the founders had some Christian principles that yeah. they used to form our government. But that's a different thing than saying Christianity is American nation. Yeah, and you actually spent some time explaining that in your book as well. I have a whole chart I could have gone through, but I yeah. can't remember it. Yeah. <laughs> it's early. It is early. It uh, is early. The, the last statement, God works through non-Christian institutions to bless the nations. Yeah, true. Definitely true. So I think one of, one of the things that I see is that a lot of Christians say God is only working in Christian institutions. But if you actually back up, you don't believe that. Nobody believes yeah, that. Right. We believe God is working in families. We believe God is working in schools. We believe God is working in the governing authorities. We believe God is working in the parks and recreation system, that God is actually doing things in this world through these different organizations that are actually many of them doing many good things. And we should be able, we should be the first to, to line up and say, we want to support these things. Now, obviously they can get off track 
and we should also be the first to say you're getting off track. <laughs> um, but God works through those means to provide order and peace. Like we are talking on the internet, we have videos, we have mics, because someone got up early this morning to make sure the electricity is working here. Right? Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. These are good things that are happening. And I think God is in those things. Uh, we, you guys maybe came to work today and we're not robbed along the way, hopefully. That's good because, you know, people have sacrificed their time to have an ordered society. Uh, you had, again, traffic lights that worked, uh, that you didn't get in a wreck and so forth and so on. Uh, it's, it's so fascinating to me that a lot of times uh, Americans, when we talk about politics or the government, we mainly talk about what's negative about it, but you recognize as we're speaking about it, they're actually giving us opportunities to speak about them by providing order in our right. lives. So we want to recognize the good that they do. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in your book, you wrote, politics can be a dirty word, but political discipleship is a good work. Why don't you explain that a little bit? What What do you mean by political discipleship, and why is that a good work? Yeah. So when you hear politics, I think immediately it's like everyone, most people are like, Ugh, I don't want to yeah. talk about that. So <laughs> what do you not talk about? Uh, we're coming up on Thanksgiving and Christmas and so forth. And so, what do you not talk about? You, I wrote a book about what you don't talk about, Christianity, <laughs> religion, and politics. So when I say politics can be a dirty word, I think we just have a natural aversion to it. Right. But when I say political discipleship is is a good work, I'm just simply meaning that, you know, Jesus Christ, when he comes into our lives, he wants to transform every aspect of our life. I like to say every single room of our life, every single back alley and corner he wants to have a part of. And he actually claims that he's Lord of all those things. And so we need to be careful to not separate our political lives from our Christianity and, and actually have the scriptures and Jesus Christ himself form our political lives. So it, it's simply a call to say, we want to be discipled in, in every single aspect of our lives, and that includes our political lives. Um, it's not the most important thing in our lives, right? But it's mm -hmm. a part of our lives that we need to think about, we need to think about well. And as I said at the beginning of this conversation, I think 2016 to 2022 revealed that we haven't done the work in the church that we need to along these lines mm -hmm. because of the division. I think that division probably always existed and it was probably never addressed. I, let me just tell a story here. I talked to one pastor and I said, they were having political problems in their church. People were leaving because of this or that view, or they thought they were too political or not political enough. And I just asked them, what, what do you wish you would have done differently? Um, like as you look back on it, right. As you look back on the situation, and this pastor told me, they just said, I wish I would have had the conversations earlier because I heard hints that there was some malformation in terms of people's lives, in terms of politics. But I kind of just let it slide because I didn't, I didn't want to like cause any issues. And so I'd be sitting across from someone from lunch and they'd rail on the government or whatever is going on. And I didn't pause them and say, now, now let, let me help. Let, let's think through this together. Let's go to the scriptures. Let's, how, how are we supposed to think of the governing systems? And just honestly come alongside them and help disciple them in that way. They just said, I, I think I avoided it. And I think now I'm seeing the effect of that, of avoiding it. And so um, this book is aimed at political discipleship because I, I really just hope that this book will be able to be a resource for pastors 
and church leaders and congregants to begin having the conversation. Mm. <laughs> like, how do we interact with politics? And you know what? Not everyone's going to agree with everything I say. I wrote about politics. That's okay. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not here for you to agree with everything I say. I just hope we can begin having that conversation in a way that's not so divisive and that begins with, we are the people of God and we are united. And, you know, one of the things I say in the book, I think I heard another pastor say this, but you are more united to your African, Japanese, Chinese brother or sister than your neighbor down the road who votes the same as you. And we just need to begin, begin on that level, right? That you are more united to your Christian brothers and sisters yeah. than yeah. those who vote like you down the road in your neighborhood and you think you have all the same political views. Yeah. So if we can just start from that base and then say, let's have the conversation. And, you know, we might have, based on our background, some disagreements about how this works out. Um, and I want to remind people, you know, we <laughs> most of us aren't policy experts. Most of us aren't economic experts. Right. Most of us aren't public schools. This is what we're supposed to do, experts. We can we can have opinions about it, but I tend to think we, we, we probably speak pretty quickly and strongly about what needs to happen when we really are. We don't know. We don't know what needs to happen. And so, like, we have very strong views about, well, the public school needs to do this because they're doing it all wrong. And I'm like, you know, yeah, they're probably doing some things wrong, but I, I also think we probably need to slow our roll a little bit and just understand that, you know, people have dedicated their lives to this and that maybe there needs to be reform. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to assume if we got in there, everything would be fixed. If they did everything we said, everything will be fixed. That's just, I think that's uh, a display some pride. Yeah. Yeah, we let our... our uh our football coach, like when we're watching our football team and we're like, oh, why did he call that play? What, you know, I, I could have done that better. And you're like, that's right. You yeah. have no idea what goes that's into a coaching example. a game. Andy Reid, you don't know what you're doing. You're a terrible <laughs> coach. Yeah. Like I know what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know plays in football, right? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just because you, just because you play NCAA 14 doesn't mean that you have a knowledge of how to coach. And most people are like, just because you watch a lot of football games doesn't mean you are smarter than that NFL coach. Right, right. (laughs) It's so easy uh, to critique when you're on the sidelines, right? right, Um, right. So, yeah, that's definitely a good example. So so let's think about even just in terms of of our American culture and our American history. Most of the major movements, at least uh, social movements, even political movements, um, in in most of them, you had pastors on the front lines, uh, whether they were using their pulpits or whether they were engaged in, you know, uh, organizing and 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 so on. You you see that. So the Revolutionary War. Uh, you know, there were pastors that were preaching from the pulpits on why America needed revolution, you know, and why we needed to break yeah. from England and so on. Uh, the Civil War, you had pastors on both sides, north and south, you know, uh, pastors preaching against slavery, pastors preaching for slavery, you know, and so on. The Civil Rights Movement, you had pastors preaching for, you know, states' yeah. rights, and you had pastors, you know, preaching, you know, uh, against the, the evils of racism and segregation and Jim Crow and 
and and and so on, and all the way up until this day, you know, even you know the moral majority was led by pastors, you know, by and large, uh, uh, you know, and and just you know even into the two thousands, you see uh, you see much the same thing. Whether we talk about uh, police brutality or you know uh, or whether we talk about uh, you know say the uh, the the Trump movement, you know, and, yeah. and so on, yeah. you see pastors all along the way. Uh, taking stands and 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 making their opinions known, and also you know uh, leading their churches in in certain directions, whether it's one way or the other or or whatever, um, is that right? Uh, you know, should should pastors be vocal uh, about their politics? I know friends, you know, friends of mine. I can think of one in particular uh, who left a church because he had a pastor uh, back in 2008, you know, who said, uh, you know, here, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you the, the, the issues that should be important to every Christian. And you looked at it and it was just straight down. I mean, it was a, it was a party platform. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It was, yeah. it was yeah. point yeah. by yeah. point, you know, the platform of, you know, one of the political parties and, right. and my friend left the church and he was just like, I just didn't think that that was appropriate. Uh, yeah. So what, you know, it isn't, you know, appropriate. Should pastors yeah. be vocal about these things? And then if so, um, assuming you're probably going to, you know, say some variation of yes in, in the world of paradox, um, <laughs> what, <laughs> um, how vocal should they be? And, and, and how, how do yeah. they navigate that position as, as a, yeah. uh, as a pastor? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, I have an answer for you, but uh, I think a lot of times based on our experience, we're either like, oh, I've been in a church that's been way too political and partisan. We shouldn't talk about that. Or, man, my pastor never talks about it. We should mm -hmm. talk about that more. And so just recognize the situation that you're coming from. Yeah. Um, I would just say, you know, we need to be vocal about what the scriptures are vocal about. <laughs> mm -hmm. So if we could just start from that baseline, uh, be vocal about the scriptures are vocal about. And, you know, they're vocal about some political issues. And so that means we should be vocal about some political issues as well. Um, where we probably get into trouble, though, is when we tell people how to respond to a certain issue in right. terms of this is what you need to do. So, um, man, I can't remember the name right now. Uh, is it Hendricks or, or something who talked about jagged versus straight lines in the scripture hmm. um, in the scriptures or in politics? And basically the concept I think that he used, I don't know if I'm getting this example exactly right, but I'll, I'll, I'll pitch it to you, is there are some really clear moral straight lines in scripture. Um all humans are made in the image of God. Murder mm -hmm. is wrong. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We are created male and female. There's a straight line. Now, what the jagged line is, how do you respond to that? Do you march? Do you protest? Do you do you stand in front of the, the Supreme Court and hold up signs? Like, it doesn't say what to do on those lines. So I think we need to be really clear where the scriptures are clear. And then we need to not speak with such force and authority where the scriptures aren't clear. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's where the jagged line comes in. How are you to respond to that? I think requiring, so let's say abortion, um, requiring your people to stand outside of abortion clinics as the response to abortion, I would say is going beyond your pastoral authority. Mm -hmm. Some people might not think that's the best way to deal with that issue. Other people might think that is the best way to deal with that issue. So what you need to do as a pastor or as a leader is speak very clearly about what the scriptures speak clearly about, and then leave it up to your congregation in terms of how are we, how are you going to deal with that? 
What are you going to do in light of that? How are you going to advocate for what is right and true and just and good? And so I think using that paradigm um, just to begin with is important. So I think it's really important, too, because a lot of pastors took a lot of flack for not being vocal on social media about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And that, te- that tends to be where a lot of people look for a response from their pastors is, why aren't you being more vocal about this on social media? Yeah, I, I would just say, you know, there's two, again, there's always um, two different ways of responding to that. Number one, if you do have a voice on social media, that is a way, a place that you can let your voice be known. And that's not a bad thing. At the same time, I think most relationships are done in person mm-hmm. and in the local church. And so that would be the primary place you want to speak about these things. Um, so I, I, I want to be really careful to not judge a person based on what they're saying or not saying on social media. Yeah. <laughs> they might have a specific use for social media that I don't know about. At the same time, on the other end, I think a lot of people are like, well, it just doesn't matter what you say on social media because social media doesn't exist. And I'm like, no, that's part of our speech. That's that's part of our witness yeah. to Christ at the same time. And so um, I think we will be judged for what we say on social media for good or for ill. Yeah. And so I just want to say it's kind of up to each person in terms of how you want to use social media. If you want to have an influence on social media, and you want to speak about those things, I say go for it. But if you want to just plug into the local church and actually deal with those real relationships, I think that's where most pastors need to uh, need to focus. At the same time, I you know, as you went through all those uh, examples in the past, I I actually love that Christians were on the forefront of some of these movements. Why? Because we care about the rest of humanity. Right. That, that that is part of what we are called to do. And so um, one author, Christopher Bryan, says, what does it mean for us to like protest or subvert the government? And he says, Christians are called to remind the government of their role and their duty. Mm. That's how we, so we're, we are not um, spies. Uh, mm. I think Oliver O'Donovan said this. We are not spies, we are prophets. Yeah. And I love that line. Yeah. We are not spies, we are prophets. In other words, we're not trying to get in there and take it over. We're not trying to get rid of them. We're just reminding them as prophets. And I think this fits with the temporal distinction. We're not kings yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are kings sort of yet, but not yet. <laughs> we are. Our main task is to be prophets to them. In other words, Christ's kingdom is coming this is what Christ has said needs to happen. And we call them to task when they're not doing what's right. So the issue of racism or the issue of abortion or the issue of civil rights or whatever it is, I do think Christians should be on the front line of those things. And some people say might say, well, you know, we shouldn't be talking about that. We should be talking about only Christ and his kingdom. But I just actually think throughout church history, it's been pretty clear that Christians and pastors have been speaking about those right. things. Um, but that's where I go back to my original statement. Be clear about what scripture is clear about yeah. and then leave the other things up to people's conscience. Because too quickly we get confused with, well, I think the scriptures are clear about this. And so you have to be a student of the scriptures. I think the scriptures are clear about this. Therefore, I can preach about this. But you just need to watch what you say and say, is that what the Bible says or is that what I'm saying? Um, there's a story of... Um, Jonathan Lehman writes about this with Mark Dever, who's in Washington, D.C. He's a pastor there. So he has politicians around him all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it was one of the senators or House of Representatives, I don't exactly remember, came to him about a budgetary issue. And he said, how should I vote? Pastor Mark, how do I vote on this issue? And um, 
uh, Mark had an opinion about it as a Christian, but he said the scripture wasn't clear about how he was supposed to vote on this budgetary issue. And so Mark just looked at him and said, I will pray for you, brother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And um, one of his congregants said, why didn't you tell him what you thought? And he said, I want to reserve my authority for what the scriptures are right. clear about. I, it's not that I didn't have an opinion about it, but I didn't want to use my authority as a pastor to say, oh, you should vote this way because mm-hmm. this is what I believe about the budget. He goes, scriptures, just the scripture wasn't clear about that. So I just said, I'm going to pray for you. Man. And I thought that was a great example of saying, I have an opinion about that. It's okay for me to have an opinion, but I'm not going to use my pastoral authority to push you in that direction. Right. Yeah. Because I... I want to remember my pastoral authority based on the scriptures and what Christ has called me to do. Yeah, it's kind of saying as as um, in terms of our public witness, we are not here primarily to represent ourselves. Um, you know, I'm I'm yeah. not here speaking on behalf of me, <laughs> but rather right. our, in our public right. witness, we are speaking as representatives of Christ and His kingdom. So, kind of the pushback to to the folks you were saying, where they're like, "Let's just be about Christ and His kingdom." We're going that's exactly what our public witness is. Yeah, right. <laughs> we are here right. to represent yeah. Christ and his kingdom. And so uh, I, I don't speak on my own behalf when I'm speaking in public. I need to remember that I'm speaking on behalf of Christ and on behalf of his kingdom, and I want to represent them well. Yeah, That's right. You should have co-authored this book with me. You say it a lot better than I do. Thank you, Roger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, let me know when the sequel comes. That's right. <laughs> uh, so two more questions. 2020. I mean, that was a a year of a lot of division. There was a lot of hurt that pastors experienced, church members experienced from their pastors. Uh, So with that in mind, and and as you've alluded, some of this existed even before that. 2020 was kind of one of those years where it just kind of all poured poured out. So what advice would you have for pastors who might be leading a politically diverse flock? How how can they keep their churches united, especially right now during this political season that we're in? Yeah, I mean, uh, remind them that the gospel is political, that that's what unites us. The Christ kingdom is what unites us, first of all. And so um, I think we need to push away from that idea that Christianity is mainly private and remind them that it's a public reality. And so unite around your confession that Jesus is king, as we've been speaking about. Second, I'd say, um, you know, teach and preach on politics from the pulpit. And what I don't mean by that is share your opinions about every view. I mean, teach what the scriptures say. There are many times when you come across a text that really has a lot to say about what we do politically. Don't avoid that. I I would say push into that. Uh, And then I've alluded to this, disciple people in the political realm. As you have personal conversations, talk to them about how are we to respond to the government. You know, we are um, past kind of the masking moment. Um, COVID still exists, but we're in a new moment now. It might be a good time to actually rewind the tape and say, how did we respond to this? Right. I can, this will probably be divisive in some ways. It's going to be hard. But I think this is a teaching moment to say, like, look, okay, um, this we, we, we need to think about how as Christians we needed to respond to this and what we were how, how we were how we did respond to this. And maybe we need some some formation work here. Um, the other thing I'd say is. Uh, you know, it's a popular phrase, but I I, I still like it. Um, be a non-anxious presence as a pastor. Mm. In other words, <laughs> um, you know, people get so worked up about this stuff. Yeah. And one of the best things you can do is just be a non-worried, peaceful, calm person who says, you know what? The church is going to move forward. Yeah. Christ's kingdom is going to win. 
and you, you keep calm and carry on. Yeah. And actually, I think your church will follow you. But if you're all worked up about yeah. everything, oh no, yeah. look at this, look what's happening how, in culture. We've got to fight. We got to do this. Your church will follow you in that too. How many so, elections of our lifetime have, have have happened? How many? This is the most important election that has ever happened. That's right. That's right. So I think lead even in terms of your tone, lead yeah. in terms of your tone. And then I've alluded to this as well, but uh, remember some things are clear and some things aren't. Mm-hmm. Speak about the things that are clear and withhold your opinion about things that are not clear. As a pastor, and I would say as a Christian, we need to call Christians to do the same thing. And we, you brought up social media, but on social media, remember that, you know, some things just aren't as clear as you think. And we know the social media algorithms. They are feeding you what you want to believe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so be careful about what you share and what you say on social media. Yeah. Any final words of encouragement for pastors and church leaders listening to this conversation? Yeah, I would just encourage them that our political life begins, remind people that our political life begins in the church. Every time we gather as the body of Christ, we are making a confession, a political confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are singing to him. We are um, performing certain acts, the ordinances that remind us of whose team we're on. Um, and as, as a church, we're actually a body politic. We are a new society in the midst of the world that is showing them a better way. Mm. And we do that not by trying to conquer them, but by, by trying to show them that this is, this is a picture of Christ's kingdom. And so one of the best ways we can be political is just to be the church mm. and to plug into a local church. That, so people are like, how do I be more political? And I say, go to church. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's more I can say, but the first thing you do, that's, yeah. that's the most political act you do. I mean, think about um, we sing national anthem. But as Christians, every week we sing anthems to our king, right? Mm. Every time a pastor gets up, I think they make a political speech. They're reminding people of who their allegiance is ultimately to and how to walk in allegiance to that true king. And so if we can even reform how we think of church, that it's not just a time to serve us and make us feel good about ourselves or to get tips on how to live life, but we're actually gathering around uh, the announcement that Christ's kingdom has come and will come. Mm-hmm. That's good. Well, that'll do it for today's conversation, Dr. Schreiner. Brother, thank you again for joining us and for writing this book. I encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of Political Gospel today. Uh, be sure to check out all the other resources Dr. Schreiner has written over the years. We could do multiple seasons of this podcast uh, on each of the books, commentaries, and resources you've put together. And listener, we want to thank you for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters. If you found today's episode helpful, consider leaving us a five-star rating and review. We'd love to hear any feedback you'd be willing to give us. As always, it is our mission at the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership to equip and encourage pastors. And I hope we've done that today with our conversation. And finally, brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.